This podcast is brought to you by Brilliant, a marketing and design studio based in Washington, D.C., where their team of designers, strategists, and human engagement experts build brilliant brands, campaigns, and revenue strategies. Contact them at brilliant.co. That's B-R-L-L-N-T dot C-O. Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Mocharco, host of DC Entrepreneur, here today on WERA 96.7 FM. Today in the studio, we're speaking with Casey Berman, who is the Managing Director and General Partner of Camber Creek. Camber Creek is a venture capital firm focused on tech companies based in the real estate market. Casey founded Camber Creek about eight years ago and oversees the organization. He's got a varied background working in real estate development and also serves on a number of different boards of directors. Thanks so much for dropping by today. George, thanks for having me. I look forward to talking with you. Casey, just tell us about Camber Creek and your value proposition and then talk about your investment strategy. Sure. So Camber Creek is focused on investing in technology companies that help and change the way real estate is operated, managed, and really utilized. So when we started Camber Creek back in 2011, we were coming out of the real estate. So my background is in property management, leasing, construction. And what we found was everything was done in Excel spreadsheets and cell phones. And we asked the question, why aren't people using technology in the real estate space? And what we found when we met with a number of our peers, a number of industry leaders, was there weren't many options. So we quickly came to the conclusion that technology and ultimately small companies building technology for real estate were going to change the way our business was run. And we saw an amazing opportunity to get involved with those companies and more importantly, help them. So we wrote the thesis for Camber Creek back in 2011, and that was we're going to, number one, help real estate-related technology companies sell into the real estate business. Number two, we were going to help them with their product because we were real estate people. And then last, if we could do the first and second step, we were going to invest money. And by creating that thesis, we found that we were really onto something big. So just to give a scale... uh, In 2011, there was $60 million invested in real estate tech companies through the whole year. The last deal we were a part of was an investment in Latch, led by Brookfield, and the deal itself was more than $70 million. So that one deal was larger than the entire real estate tech investment of 2011. So now you've got investments in a number of companies in D.C. You just mentioned Latch, but you've also invested in Fundrise, uh, Go Canvas, and Y Hotel. Can you just talk about what made these particular startups attractive and why you decided to invest in them? So when we look at a technology company, we try to explore all the possible companies solving that specific problem. So with the example of Fundrise, Fundrise is real estate crowdfunding. And they when they were founded, were one of the first to markets to offer a retail investor the opportunity to invest in a real estate asset directly. Before 
Fundrise, the only way to get direct exposure was through a publicly traded REIT. So when we were doing our due diligence on Fundrise, we were exploring not only Fundrise, but the leading crowdfunding real estate and crowdfunding websites across the whole country. So a lot of people are familiar with Kickstarter. We actually looked at Kickstarter, and and they had no real estate exposure. Mm -hmm. It was all consumer products. There was a couple of companies based out of California that had just started. And what we found was, number one, the team at Fundrise, Ben Miller and his team, were really on to something big and could have shown a track record of producing. And that really led us to Fundrise and made it ultimately made it why we decided to invest in, in Fundrise. And then Canvas and Latch, can you just talk about what made those particularly of note uh, to Camber Creek? Why, why were they ones that you wanted to invest in? Right. So when we first looked at Canvas, the first thing we did was we started piling it with a number of our LPs. And we found that their ability to take a traditionally paper workflow and digitize it made not only our business more efficient, but saved us a lot of time and money. So with Canvas, it was very obvious that because we had tried it, because we had an actual firsthand experience, and we had LPs who had tried it, we saw the value proposition. And Jim Quigley and his team have an amazing ability to execute, and they've shown that for the past five years at how really large they could get with a, a tool that could be applicable to so many companies. And then with Latch, we took a similar approach to their investment in Latch as we did with Fundrise, and that is we explored what was in the market at the time. So when you look at an apartment building, and this is back in 2013, 2014, and you looked at the access control systems, there was a number of different tools that the resident, the property manager, and the owner had for access control. So they had key fobs, traditional keys, and uh, punch codes. And each one of those had a separate procedure depending on whether it was a customer or the property management team. And we came to the conclusion that there would be a transition to a unified platform, one platform, the same way Apple took music and digital communication to the next level with the iPhone. Latch had that same approach, and it made sense. A bunch of the, or two of the founders of Latch were actually from Apple. And they took this single platform concept and applied it to an apartment building. So whether it's the front door, the amenity spaces, the, the apartments, every single access point could be controlled from your cell phone or for the property management, a single platform to manage the whole process. So it would save money on the actual operation side. And then additionally, it provide the best possible consumer experience for the residents. So with Latch, we dug into the product. We had uh, some LP buy-in, and we had some LPs look at the actual solution. And then we compared Latch to the larger set of newer companies that were developing their own technologies. And ultimately, Luke and his team drew us to Latch, and we believed in their vision. Okay, so let's talk about Y Hotel then. Uh, so Camber Creek just invested $3.9 million in a seed round for Y Hotel. Just talk to me about what makes this company a great investment for you. Today, a hotel guest has a lot of opportunities. They can stay in a traditional hotel 
like a Marriott. And when they get there, they know what to expect. There's a brand. There's an expectation of service. There's a known quantity. They can decide to stay at an Airbnb, a VRBO, a number of different consumer-to-consumer sites. And it's a great option. There's a lot of variability. And you really have no idea what you're going to get until you show up. And on the one hand, you can have the best stay you've ever stayed at, at an amazing house, an amazing apartment. On the other hand, it might not be what you what you thought you were going to get. So why hotel really bridges the gap between those two scenarios for the customer. They get a known product, the best level of service and quality and expectation that you could get from a known brand when it comes to a short-term stay in a long-term rental, so a short-term stay in an apartment. And at the same time, they really provide the developer of apartments an entirely new revenue stream to help during the most risky part of an apartment development. So talk to me about the size and state right now of the real estate tech market. Because, I mean, real estate right now, real estate tech is is kind of a new space. Talk to me about some of the innovations you're seeing come forward besides, we just talked about Latch, uh, Y Hotel. What types of other innovations are you seeing in this space? And what do you predict is going to happen in the next decade or so? Right. So to give some more background, in 2011, there was sixty around $60 million invested into the entire real estate space. In 2017, there was over $12 billion invested. So the macroeconomic trends are incredibly strong right now. And it's really driven by two factors. The first is that real estate owners and operators are adopting technology faster than they've ever looked into at technology or bought technology. And in 2011, when we first started, real estate companies were really hesitant to even try technology. Today, in order to be relevant, you really need to be diving in headfirst, and we're seeing that across all asset classes. The second major trend is that the resident, the customer, or the tenant, depending on the asset class, is really demanding a much higher level of service and quality that can only be achieved through the adoption of technology. So two amazing factors for the macroeconomic trends of real estate tech are occurring. The consumer of the technology and the buyers of the technology are both demanding more. And that drives this whole industry and really speaks to why the the size of the market and the investment opportunity has grown so much. And then in the second piece, we really classify technology companies into two buckets. There are workflow tools, and those are tools that make traditional businesses more efficient and or change the way traditional business is done by implementing technology. A great example of that is one of our portfolio companies, Bowery. They take a traditionally outdated process of doing an appraisal and use technology and machine learning to make the process three to six times faster and more efficient, which saves ultimately saves the borrower money, and have created a tool that is nearly uh, the same as a traditional appraisal. So they've taken a, a slow, inefficient process and made it incredibly efficient through the implementation of technology. The other bucket that we really are looking at is the utilization of real estate in a more efficient way. So 
some household names for that are Airbnb. You know, if you had an apartment and you didn't spend a month there, you really didn't have much of an option in terms of trying to get some ancillary income for that apartment. Airbnb has changed that whole game with their marketplace. Y Hotel is another great example at a larger scale with developers where they can take vacant apartment units during lease-up. So if a building is leasing up over a 24-month period, they can take those vacant units and immediately monetize them. And so Y Hotel is, is an example of maximization of an apartment asset. And what we're finding is across all different asset classes, we're finding utilization and and increased efficiency plays through technology. So I know a lot of the listeners that we have on this show that are founders of startups or co-founders of startups are dying to know, you know, what criteria are you looking for whenever it comes to your investments as a venture capitalist? Like what criteria are you looking at? I know there's got to be a, a number of different things, but what are the things that really stick out in your mind whenever it comes to finding a company to invest in? So the most important piece, and this is what we really look at when we're doing due diligence as the team, and it is critical that we see a team that can both execute and scale. So as a venture capitalist, our game, our investment, our strategy, our entire process is based around scaling companies. And in order to scale companies, it takes an incredibly strong team that can execute at a very high level. And what that means is that each stage of funding, we require the companies we look at to show through traction, through their metrics, that they can execute and that they can continue to execute while growing rapidly. And what that means could be different for each company. And the way we do it is uh, pretty unique in that we like to try these companies before we invest. And what Tr- that means, try the meaning what exactly? So with with our LP network, our LPs are all owners and operators of real estate. So when we start working with a potential portfolio company, we immediately determine who in our LP network could be a customer. And by doing that, we can find out real data about the abilities about the company's ability to execute. So for the example of the appraisal company. During our due diligence, we had the appraisal company do an appraisal for one of our LPs, and we could compare it side by side in terms of how long did it take, how much did it cost, how did the actual appraisal, the actual product, compare to the traditional product. And by running through that process during our due diligence, we receive real data about the company's ability to execute. And then we can take it to the next level and say, okay, here are two potentially new customers Let's see if you can get them to buy your product as well. And then based on how long it takes for them to close the new customers, what they can charge the new customers, we can really dig into how fast the company can scale, how fast the company can close, and all this real data compared to their actual financial pro forma. Once we learn all of that and we talk to the team and going through this process, we can really get a feel for a company and their founders. And by doing that, when we find a company that has the potential to scale, they've shown they can scale through the execution and working with us, then we invest. Interesting. Well, I, I think that that's really fascinating for a lot of our listeners because 
they really want to peel back the curtain on exactly what's going through the VC's mind whenever it comes to being invested in. You mentioned the teams. Is there anything specifically about the team that you kind of hone in on? Is it like how well the team communicates? Is it just their ability to execute? Or is it just the fact that they have a team in place that seems like it has potential to to grow? So a major piece of it with the team is the team's ability to de-risk and create an unfair advantage. A great example with Fundrise was Ben Miller was an expert in real estate development. He had decades of experience doing real estate development. He was looking to create a brand new way to raise equity for real estate. So with that scenario, his team had shown that they could do almost every piece of the puzzle. So they had all of the traction, all of the procedures, all the process processes in place to do the real estate because they had done real estate. So the team had experience in all of the verticals that were necessary, except for the brand new one. And at that time with crowdfunding, nobody had experience with crowdfunding because it was a brand new concept. It had just, uh, the, the legal ramifications of doing crowdfunding had just been changed. And they were learning it at the very beginning when no one else had done it. So with every venture capital deal, there's always going to be a risk. The key with the team is to have team members who add the most value and have the most experience to de-risk everything you can possibly de-risk. And so when it comes to adding value, that's something you also do as an investor, right, whenever you join the board. Is that correct? Right. So one of the key things for us, once we go through our due diligence process, we'll have a great working relationship with our startup companies. And by creating that relationship, we then can leverage our entire LP network and our greater network of real estate owners and operators to drive a large portion of business to the startups. So the key for us is really finding companies that once we invest, we can add dramatic value to. And since day one, since 2011, our key has always been how much value can we bring Let's write it down on paper. Let's talk to the founding team about how much value we can bring. And once we've determined exactly what steps we're going to take to add that value, then we can invest. And if the number of customers isn't enough, if the value we think we can bring is not large enough, we'll we'll ultimately pass on a deal. So when you were talking about investing in a team, you mentioned experience is something that's really important to you, experience in the market or experience in that sector. What about some of the early stage founders that are really young? Maybe they don't have the maturity that people that have experience within an industry or area have. Do you ever take a risk on somebody that has just a great idea, but maybe doesn't have the ability to execute because they're young, you know, or they just haven't had enough experience in business? So the key for us is trying to de-risk an investment. And I won't say we'll never invest in someone with no experience, Uh If we were to explore an investment opportunity where a founder has very little experience, the key for us would be de-risking that execution through working with them. So they might have very little experience. They might be young. However, the major parts of our due diligence process would determine what level of maturity they can act upon and what level of maturity they could execute upon in trying to sell to our LPs, trying to Uh, close a deal, seeing how long it takes them to hire people. And by going through this partnering process, 
we can really determine if a founder might be too young. And it might, a lot of times, and a good example, we'll track a company for years and it will be too early for a number of years. And then at the right time, when we see they're starting to execute and we can actually bring the full value of our LP network to a company, we'll then invest. Has there ever been an investment you made in where you were uncertain about some of those kind of factors? Say, for instance, maybe the sales were low and you still believed in the product or service they were creating. Right. So with every company, there's going to be risk factors. The key for us is during our due diligence process, coming up with our priority risk factors. And what that means is these are where we feel like the company has the highest risk. This is where the most exposure is for our investment. And then trying to figure out through what the value we can bring, how do we de-risk those? So with one company we were looking at and we ultimately invested in, our concern was around how fast they could close. So we knew the product was better than the existing incumbents in the market. We knew that the team could execute at a really high level. Their sales cycle was just long. And what we determined was through the growth of their product, through word of mouth, through the expansion of their product in a market, the sales process, it was our prediction, the sales process would shrink because more people would know about it. More people would be talking about it. At the next conference, they would hear more people saying it. There would be this echo chamber, and it would reduce the sales process, the sales cycle. And ultimately, we could really de-risk that fear because we could add a large number of, invest, of, of customers right out of the gate, making that the, the sales cycle even shorter faster. Uh, We made that investment. That was a concern. And pretty quickly after we made a number of introductions and they had some big wins, the sales cycle shrunk dramatically. So there is always the really the conclusion is there's always going to be risk. There's always going to be something that is going to add risk to a company. And ideally, we can help shrink that amount of exposure. When it comes to managing risk, do you have a certain amount of like reserve capital within your operations just in case something goes wrong with an investment or you know say you get burnt by an investment and want to focus on some other companies that you've put money into right so we have a very focused portfolio creation approach and with every one of our portfolio companies we reserve money for follow-on investments so with every startup they raise money more than once there may be some exceptions to that, but is it generally our expectation that when we invest one time, we're going to invest multiple times. And because of that, we have a variety of buckets that we invest in, or invest from with regard to a company. One of the scenarios that you described is in the, uh, what we would call a down scenario, where it might not be the best scenario, it might be something went wrong, and there might be trouble in the market, there might be a black swan, whatever it might be. We do have reserves to then try to find the best possible outcome. So I heard this once from an investor. I guess they had run a venture capital firm for 10 or 20 years, and they basically kind of broke it down like this. They said that for every 10 investments they made, there'd probably be about nine that they realized wouldn't work, and there was one that was just dramatically successful. Kind of what's the ratio that you find of success to failure rate whenever you invest? So when you look at the industry standard, that's pretty common, what you just described, that would be totally unacceptable for our strategy. So one of the differentiators for us is we have had companies who have sold 
uh, who would not be necessarily the best possible outcome, but we still made money. And the key for us is that we can bring a huge network of customers and we can try to see if we can sell to those customers before investing. So when we look at our metrics, we might not necessarily have, you know, two, three, four Grand Slams. We absolutely have Grand Slam potential in our portfolio. Um, However, on the downside, we see a lot fewer zeros. Um, With our distribution for our existing portfolio for our first fund, we see a lot more in the singles, doubles, triples. And then we still still have potential for the grand slams in that portfolio as well. And it's really just based on timing. When do you know when to take the risk? I mean, because I I think that's something that probably most people are wondering why they make that choice. When when do you know when it's worth to take the risk? Right. So we've talked a, a lot about the concept of really digging in and partnering with the company. And to us, that is where we go from, this is a great idea, the team has a great track record on paper, to this is a company we want to partner with, potentially for a decade, and build to something amazing. So during that process, there is not one single factor that makes us say, yep, this is it. It's a combination of how well can the company sell? How responsive? How well do they communicate expectations? And then once the expectations have been communicated, how well do they execute against those expectations? For our firm, the diligence process is not 30 days. Thanks for sending me your financials. You guys look great on paper. Here's a check. It's more of an experience where we get to know the people. They get to know us, and they see how we roll up our sleeves and really start working with the company. So the conviction that we get around a company partnership process. That's interesting that you say that because I had a guest on two years ago, I think, uh, Alex Basala, who's also a venture capitalist. One of the things he mentioned to me was that there was actually a lot of focus on the personalities of the people that are starting up these companies. How much would you say that that's a criteria that you think about whenever it comes to investment? Yeah, I I know Alex well. He's very insightful. Um, So the personality is key especially around how they work together. So a startup is not easy. It is very hard to do a startup. And the effort required to work with a firm, with with a partner, with a co-founder, gets very challenging. And there's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be issues. And being able to work through those is very hard. So first, the relationship with the co-founders and those personalities and making sure they work well together is incredibly important. And then on top of that, the people around the table, the boardroom, who are ultimately the investors, that's another critical piece. One bad investor can really throw a curveball into the execution of a company. So it is key, and this is something after we make an investment, we are very careful and we work with the companies to explore potentially other investors, follow on investors. And it's important to find out who these other people are because it's more than just the money. With every opportunity, an investor, it's way more than the money, and the personalities in the room are critical. Yeah, I I think an interesting example of that right now would be with Tesla. You're seeing that uh, Elon Musk has been making a number of different public statements, uh, not taking uh, responses from analysts on his calls very seriously, talking about kind of extreme burnout because he's managing, I I think, three companies. 
And I think that's a company that's driven by personality, but uh, perhaps is suffering from founder syndrome. How often do you find that uh, the founders that you work with tend to want to create, have more control over their, their companies whenever you come to take a seat on the board? So I think Elon Musk is a pretty extreme example of uh, one type of founder, and uh, it, it really varies. So the life cycle of a startup, we see a lot of different personalities from a single person. Mm-hmm. When a company is re- very small, very scrappy, a founder, a CEO, the team really just needs to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And then once we see later stage companies, the personality of the founding team, the personality of the employees, the dynamic really changes and presents a totally new set of problems. So what we have found is the founders that have had the most success have continuously been able to alter what their focus is over time. And as the company continues to grow, they grow as a leader and change their focus. They change how much they're delegating. They change how much they're working on the technology, change how much they're fundraising. And the hardest part of a startup is ultimately how fast things are changing, and it requires a leader who can change just as quickly. Do you ever feel like there's... Part of your investment is also investing in the training and growth of that particular leader within right. a startup? Yeah. So a great example of that already is with Y Hotel. So Y Hotel was founded by Jason Fudin and Bao Vuong. The two of them had worked together at a prior company in the real estate development space and already had a remarkable dynamic before they even joined, to, joined together to found Y Hotel. And the two of them are constantly changing and learning about their space. So both of them were in the real estate space. They had exposure to the hotel world, but they had never directly run the day-to-day operations of a hotel. And before they had even run a hotel, they became experts on paper in the hotel space. And that's just a great example where the founding team has to be consistently learning and constantly changing and staying at the front of things. And they have shown already a great ability to attract top talent in the hotel space and, more importantly, lead a hotel company. So one of the things that we talk about here on the show and in a lot of entrepreneurship circles is about being able to, to fail at certain things and learn from that. What happens when you have, say, a leader of a startup fail are you willing to still work with them or is it something that, um, you know, you just kind of like say, we're going to pass on this for this time and then wait for someone else to invest in them? How much does failure drive future decisions? With failure, in our mind, the key is how. How did they fail? How did they treat their founder or the employees when they failed? How did they treat us as an investor if we were an investor when they failed? In hearing about founders, CEOs, everyone has a failure story. It's just a fact of life. You're not going to succeed at everything. That's impossible. So the how is incredibly important. How people were treated becomes number one. And what we have heard in the past was this is an amazing company. It was an amazing idea. I made money. I would never back that CEO again. And that, to me, was a huge red flag that 
I wouldn't get near a company where a person made money and still wouldn't invest in that founder at all. The opposite is I lost all my money with that company. They did incredibly well. They worked their butt off to try to find me a way out. And at the end of the day, we couldn't. And we lost our money together. But any day that person comes back to me, I would back them again. An endorsement like that is pretty meaningful. And it really speaks to how that founder tried to do right by their investors. And that goes back to the how. How do you, how did that founder work when it, the hard stuff started to come? And that's important. So failing is going to happen. The key is how people manage it. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of the business. That's a part of business in general. Yeah. That's really insightful. So let's talk about your background. So you have a family business that you worked with in real estate development, and you were director of operations there or worked on operations with Berman Enterprises. Talk to me about how that led you to the path in real estate tech as an investor. So my role at Berman Enterprises was the president of operations, and I saw in office management, office leasing, construction, in retail management, apartment management, and leasing, that everything was old-fashioned. And this went back to how we created our thesis. Everything we did from working with our property managers to our building engineers to our leasing teams to our GC arm, everything was an Excel spreadsheet and a phone. And I asked the question, why aren't we using technology? It became very clear there just wasn't that many options. And before we even found a company, a small tech company in the general contracting space, we knew that there was a huge opportunity, more so than making our core business more efficient, making Berman Enterprises more efficient. We knew there was an opportunity to invest in those technology startups and help those companies grow in addition to helping Berman Enterprises So by creating Camber Creek, and this is in 2011, we created Camber Creek to invest in tech companies that could help real estate. And what we found was we spoke the language of the real estate owners and operators because we were real estate owners and operators. So my partners at Camber Creek have experience in all facets of real estate. Um, We've worked in the private sector at GSA, which is one of the largest Uh, landlords and operators in the country. And between that public and private experience, we can communicate with the customer. We also understand technology to the degree that we know how it works. We know how it'll be more efficient. And we can bridge that gap between the owners and operators and the technology creators. So real estate tech is a really ripe market right now for startups. What are some of the challenges that startups that are innovating in this space may face? Because I know real estate is typically a very illiquid type of investment, right? What are some of the challenges that a real estate tech company has when it comes to innovating in this area? Right. So one of the hardest things is an amazingly talented team will come along and say, we've created this amazing tech. It makes this workflow more efficient. Let's say communication for apartment buildings. And the apartment owners and operators then say, well, I'm communicating just fine. Why do I need it? And that communication difference 
causes a lot of problem with a lot of companies in real estate tech. How do you sell into real estate tech mm-hmm. or into a real estate company? The language that the leasing teams for a apartment building is different than the language of the leasing teams for an office building. It's even more different for a retail center. So between the different vernaculars for each asset class, the different marketing and listing services for all the different asset classes, all these nuances in real estate create a challenging sale for these tech companies that create an opportunity for us to add value. You know, our our investments can add a lot of value, but more importantly, we can go to one of our LPs who has an apartment uh, portfolio of apartments and say, we've looked at the three best marketing softwares in the apartment space. Here's a list of the top three. We invested in this one for these reasons. And the marketing person for that company understands it. We speak their language. And by getting past that, by getting lowering the friction, we can dramatically reduce sales cycles. So the the thing we always say to a startup is the technology is less than half the battle. The hardest thing in real estate tech is speaking the language and more importantly, conveying the value proposition to the actual owners and operators of the real estate. We've been talking with Casey Berman of Camber Creek. Thanks so much for dropping by the studio today, Casey. Well, first, let me say thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed our time here today. The key for us is we always want to start talking to people early on. And in every part of the venture capital business, it is about starting the relationship early and communicating expectations early. So thank you very much for having me. We look forward to meeting more DC founders. And uh, I can't wait to uh, speak with you again. Great. How can they get in touch with you? Uh, You can find us at www.cambercreek.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.